This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Anne Helen Peterson. Anne had an article on BuzzFeed that went viral about a year ago that was about burnout. And she has since turned that into a new book in which she elaborates on the thesis of that article called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. A lot of my listeners are millennials and have experienced burnout even within the context of churches and things like that. One of the things that brought this to my attention is that she is also the writer of a new publication on Substack called Culture Study, and she details how burnout is affecting clergy during the coronavirus. She also has a bit in the book that I reference but don't get around to actually quoting, so I'm going to quote it now here in the introduction. And she's talking about the sense of calling and how that causes some people to devalue their work. And she says, a calling, in other words, is often an invitation for exploitation, whether you're a zookeeper or a teacher or a pastor. Uh, and that really stuck out to me and was one of the things that we end up talking about in a roundabout way as millennials in general tend to devalue our work, or at least the elder millennials as both Anne and I are. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a little bit of a departure from from what I often have here on the show, but she does have an experience within evangelicalism that we kick off the conversation with. And so there is still some relevance there. And just after this insane year that we've had, this book really is dropping at a very opportune time and a lot of it will resonate with my listeners. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anne Helen Peterson. Let's get into it. My guest today is Anne Helen Peterson, author of the new book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Ms. Peterson is also the author of the Substack publication, Culture Study, and an alum of BuzzFeed News. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for coming on. I've uh, really enjoyed your work for a while. And uh, what made me want to reach out and talk to you for this particular show were two things. Uh, first, your book, which is very relevant to my own experience, as well as a lot of my listenership, as well as a piece you did on clergy burnout and uh, the aforementioned culture study, which we'll get to. But first, how um, these conversations usually go is that we like to discuss someone's history relative to their experience in Christianity. Um, you've written on Twitter and elsewhere that you were once a Christian, but have since moved away from from calling yourself that. Could you give us sort of a Cliff Notes version of your own experience? Like, for instance, were you a youth group kid or anything like that? Oh, yeah. So I grew up in a, a weird church that I didn't realize was weird until I uh, left the church. I mean, not weird in the <laughs> in the traditional way, more like, so it's a federated Presbyterian UCC church. Okay. Which most of, like if anyone, if you're familiar with the denominations, it's not really a, a natural fit. <laughs> and my parents joined in the 1980s when the church was really much more of a split, like half UCC, half Presbyterian. And the pastor at the time was a UCC pastor. And this was before UCC really became affiliated with some of the more progressive uh understandings that it's affiliated with now. But uh, this is in Northern Idaho in a small town of 30,000 people called Lewiston. And, you know, my parents had both grown up Lutheran or Presbyterian, had gone to a Lutheran college in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, had always gone to church, you know, like something that is very unfamiliar to me now is like, oh, you know, we moved to a new town and they would just like go shopping for a new church like that was just really expected and my mom sang in the choir you know was part of different women's organizations I went to preschool in the basement mm-hmm. uh, my mom was on the search committee for a new pastor that was called that was a Presbyterian pastor and then also for I believe the um, youth pastor who was called when I was in the second grade and that youth pastor had a you know really influential role in my life. And then the main pastor, who was also there throughout my life, um, his daughter was my age, and I was so I was very close with her and with with that pastor. And like a lot of mainline churches, to some extent, over the course of the '90s, the church gained a little bit of an evangelical flair, and that manifested both in terms of like you know, adding a second service with guitar and praise music. Mm-hmm. But also, I think, with focusing a little bit more on youth group as almost a like a proselytizing measure in some ways, right? Like, um, and just more talk in general about, like, sex and, you know, keep vertical campaigns. There was never a purity ring like we never went that far down the the purity conversation, but there was a lot of talk about like saving yourself and in those sorts of conversations. Um, yeah. I went to a Christian college and there was um, four on the floor. Was the- <laughs> <laughs> like, like seriously? I have a I have a picture of myself with a little cutout sign that says like "Stay vertical." <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's really I think just like trying to make it so that you don't make out with your boyfriend like on the couch. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, Idaho has a a very strong um, Mormon population. Like a a lot of the people that I went to school with were Mormon. And I think there also was a a kind of a subtle 
campaign to counter their proselytizing efforts. You know, every, I had so many friends and like unserious boyfriends who gave me copies of the Book of Mormon and scribe of different verses trying to convert me. And so there was some, some talk both about like, here's all the ways that Mormons aren't Christian. And also at the same time, trying to like make our youth group cooler than their youth group. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and uh the big thing though apart from being part of the church like vis-a-vis my family and like friends and different people that I'd known all my life who who went to that church like I just had a real constancy there was that I got really involved in the Presbyterian camp that I had attended since elementary school Mm -hmm. like a lot of those camps they have like a very robust CIT counselor and training program where they essentially take high school labor for free (laughs) so that you can be the counselors for like second through fifth graders. So I did that every summer and really like I would end up spending about four to six weeks every summer up at that camp and then worked there for a full time. I swear, I think I got paid total a thousand dollars for three months of work uh, full time when I was in college. And then I worked as an intern, a youth intern that lived on the site of my church for another summer in college. So it was very much a part of my life, even as I started drifting from the everyday experience of church when I was in college. Like I, I started, I had been very straight edge all during high school and like, didn't drink, mm-hmm. didn't say the F word. Uh, uh, you know, wasn't, was waiting to have sex till marriage. And like one by one, those components kind of dropped away during college. I went to a secular college, mm-hmm. but I still really considered myself a Christian. And I think there were just was like, at some point, the the reality of my, my secular life, as we, you know, as people call it when you're in the church, just became um, too much for the, the infrastructure of my Christian life to bear, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make sense. I think the experience of seeing evangelical influence in mainline churches like that, that was definitely present in the 90s and was something that yeah. that happened a lot. And I'm sure um, you also have a background in media studies, and I think yeah. a lot of that is based on the prevalence of evangelical literature and that sort of thing. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. And as you went through that process in college and afterwards, was it something where it was just a, a gradual sort of moving away from that? As you mentioned, like the infrastructure no longer fit you or was it something that like sort of languished over time and, but eventually you just sort of made peace with and that sort of thing? I think it was pretty gradual, you know, even in grad school, I would still sometimes wake up and go to church on Sundays. Like there was a Presbyterian church where I got my MA in Eugene, Oregon, that I would go to. And I would just feel like such comfort in doing things like reading the or singing the doxology, which is, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I think I was also gaining some insight with the time that had passed between me and my high school and college years about a lot of the manipulation that I felt mm-hmm. was associated with the emotional emis- manipulation of the evangelical components of the church um and a lot of the just the shame around sex which felt to me like very wrong-headed and 
uh, you know, the, it's easy to say hypocritical. It just, I think it, it creates this black cloud around sex that stays with people for a very long oh. time. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And I know that that's something that, that oh, every, like every single evangelical ex evangelical that I've talked to, this is something that we share. Yeah. And then, you know, over the course I think I like didn't really think about church at all while I was doing my PhD, like didn't think about it in any sort of insightful way. And now that I, I found myself in my thirties, just so fascinated with the history of what happened right over the course of the nineties and these different shifts in the church kind of excavating not only my history, but the larger history within the movement. And then also trying to figure out, as a reporter, places where the church is still good, right? Ways that the church can be good. And I think that even though I I don't consider myself a Christian, and I think that a lot of that has to do with this resistance to the stereotype in so much American media, that some of it's very true, right? Like the like cool church, uh, very vacuous, devoid of substance, hypocritical and manipulative. I want oftentimes to show that that's not all church by any means, but that still is some church. <laughs> oh, certainly. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated thing to be able to delineate, especially in a sort of mass media way. Um, it's yeah. it's still something that even with the sort of focus that this current administration has put on evangelicals and just Christianity in general, I should say, um, not even just that section of uh, it's still something that is a topic of sort of interest and sort of confusion, I think, for people that haven't had that experience. Yeah. During your experience, you know, as this person that did all this volunteering, and can you identify now in retrospect the ways in which even those church experiences may have primed you to burn out or overcommit or that sort of thing? That's so interesting. I, so I'm an elder millennial. I was born in 1981. And I think something that is the result of where I grew up and like parenting strategies and just like the fact that my high school wasn't very challenging. I love doing stuff for the church because I didn't really have anything else to do. Mm-hmm. Right. I wasn't over committing because I really didn't have anything else to do. Um, besides, I mean, I was a cheerleader because there wasn't anything else for a girl to do. <laughs> like I couldn't play ball sports. I was like, what else could I do? I guess I can lead youth group and be a cheerleader. Uh, and I also like just take a lot of joy hanging out with kids. And I think that that was always something that I, I felt really good about. Um, mm-hmm. And so I never felt that so much when I was compelled to do the church component. If anything, I think that when I think back on, especially camp, so this was a space, this is like, like a lot of church camps, it was a very simple camp. Like there was no fancy, there was no horses, there was no like carpet. (laughs) Like it was, it was like, we're talking about old shacks that kind of leaked, sometimes let in squirrels that had five bunk beds in them. And then the counselor slept on one of those crappy gray mattresses on the floor in a sleeping bag. (laughs) It was so incredibly simple. And the only technological sophistication was they had a um, projector 
like not not a digital projector, but the kind, you know, the old kind from like elementary school and junior high that you put like the the plastic thing on that had the words to the the oh, praise yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like that and we would sing outside at night like everyone would just be getting bitten by mosquitoes you're like on this <laughs> lake and you're singing our god is an awesome god you know <laughs> like I just, um and and also just the idea too that you weren't really allowed to have secular uh anything so the number of cds that were available to you to listen to like just on a daily basis whether it was like at lunch or in the cabin it's like 10 cds <laughs> it's like how you know you have like two jars of clay cds and like a third day cd it was just very limited the things that yeah. you <laughs> the things you could read to the counselors at bed or the, the kids when you're going to sleep at night it was like we can read one of the Narnias or we can read chicken soup for the Christian soul. Like just, <laughs> it was very limited. And I think I really reveled in that. You also, there was no computer and this was before cell phones, no cell phones. You wrote letters, which was just a delight. And so in some ways, I think that those experiences were an anecdote, an anecdote to a lot of the burnout that I would internalize over the course of my mm. life. With that said, I will say that I have talked to a lot of people whose evangelical experiences were much more based on proselytizing, mm -hmm. who felt they were like, this is a burnout recipe because you're never converting enough people. You're never inviting enough people into the, like, the love of Christ. You, it is never enough. The work is never done. Yeah. So of course you're gonna burn out. Yeah. There are definitely those instances in evangelical churches as adults, if you're in a small church and you have to volunteer a ton yep. just because to, because there's not enough people to do things. Like I was part of a, like a storefront church in Chicago and mm -hmm. everybody who left, left because they burned out, like yeah. almost without exception. However, I want to return to your book. Your book really is an expansion of a piece about burnout that went viral. Um, and it's a term, that's a term that mo a lot of us most likely know at this point and an experience that a lot of millennials have, um, if not most of them. But what what is your go-to definition of that term, burnout? That you're running and you're running and you're running. You're so exhausted. You're almost to the end. You hit a wall. And instead of collapsing, you scale the wall and then you keep running. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really just the backdrop of our lives. It's not an exhaustion that can be recovered from with a weekend of rest or quote unquote self-care, those sorts of things. It is our daily existence. Mm -hmm. And what was the sort of initial response that you got to that BuzzFeed article and on top of that, what, what are some examples from your own life of the ways in which you've burned out? Oh, the, the feedback was just ridiculous. Like I'm talking thousands of emails and wow. what people would do is they would email me and they'd say, I don't want to add another email to your like inbox of shame, which is something that I talk about in the piece is how like, I feel like my inbox becomes this long list of things that I want to do, but cannot bring myself to do. Um, mm -hmm. But so they'd say, you know, give that caveat and then launch into a thousand words, two thousand words, three thousand words of ex describing the contours of their own burnout and the history, the, the specifics of it. And I think what it was providing, what the article provided was people 
they, it just provided language and a word to describe something that they had felt for a very long time, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened with me. Like I was absolutely burnt out from my job and from just the compulsion to be working all the time. Mm-hmm. And I had been that way for a long time. And my editor suggested after the midterm election that maybe I was a little burnt out. And I was like, what are you talking about? I took two days off before Thanksgiving. (laughs) And (laughs) I thought that my problem that I wanted to write about was just that I couldn't complete like simple errands. I was like, I have errand paralysis. Let me write about that. And as I started researching why I couldn't do those errands. I was like, oh, aha, yes, very burnt out. And I just didn't recognize it as such because I really thought that burnout was when a doctor or a foreign correspondent like collapses on the ground and can't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that for me, the useful move was to try to expand the understanding of what burnout could look like and also think through the ways in which it has accumulated so acutely on the millennial generation in particular, but also other people outside of the the technical definition of millennials. And so much of that is wrapped up in the financial precarity of so many of the millennial generation. Again, it's not necessarily, precarity is not exclusive to millennials, but it is a big generational experience. Yeah, well, and that connects to like you talking about this storefront church. The reason so many people had to like spend so much time volunteering is because the church was trying to survive, right? And that's, you know, not to fast forward, I'm sure we'll get to this, but that's why it's so many clergy who are burnt out, they are all responding to lack mm-hmm. of resources in so many different connotations of the word in their own churches. Mm-hmm. Your book addresses how millennials were raised and the sort of development of concerted cultivation by parents as ways to pad resumes and how like even within our own cohort, I'm also an older, I'm older millennial. Uh, I'm 37. Um, I grew up in small town, Indiana, uh, and I had a bit more sort of free time. We lived like apart from the town. So I had more unstructured time than a lot of people did. But the the ways in which we were raised were to get us to think career-oriented so young. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this idea that college would be the this magic golden ticket uh, to success and also to stability. Could you explain some of why that has not panned out, why that has in many ways been a false bill of goods um, and has contributed to this sense of always needing to strive. Yeah, a lot of it can be traced to this idea that was really popularized for the first time in the post-war period, which is like college is good for everyone, more college is better, and also college is the way to stability. And that gradually gain steam over the course of our parents' lifetimes and into millennials' lifetimes. So our parents were really dealing with a wave of precarity and and economic instability in the 1970s and 80s after several decades of stability in the post-war period. And they're like, how can, if if they reach the middle class in some way, there was this fear of falling out of it, either because... Uh, the you know a lot of the working class 
or a lot of the the manual labor jobs that were middle class were disappearing or just because like the cost of everything were becoming more difficult to bear like any number of reasons and one thing that boomers could control is what their their kids did they were like okay if i if i'm struggling for stability how can i put my kid on the path to stability how about make sure they get into college no matter what so college becomes kind of like a, a cure to the stability that our parents generation was feeling and the problem is that at the same time that they were positioning that as this cure there was also a wide scale defunding of public institutions mm -hmm. so at the same time that all of these parents were like okay we're going to make sure that our kids go to college no matter what and really thinking i think a lot of parents either didn't save weren't able to save or thought that if they had gone to college and and only accumulated a small amount of debt or you know the story that every boomer loves to tell about i worked my way through college and so can you that was just not a reality because by the time Millennials started entering into college, the cost, even of state schools, had risen to the point that most people had to take on some sort of debt unless they had significant scholarship. And there were other things happening in the private sphere that was driving up tuition there as well, in part to like keep pace with this idea that college is this rarefied space, this rarefied, transformative lifestyle almost. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of evangelicals that I've talked to who went to Bible colleges took on a fair amount of debt if they didn't, like some people were able to have their um, their schooling paid for entirely either through fundraising or, or through various scholarships to the church or through the school. But some like finished a degree that has proven if they're not working in ministry, a degree that is pretty worthless and have a significant amount of usually private debt too, which is really difficult to grapple with. So, yeah, absolutely. I went to a Christian college, so that's an experience that a lot of my colleagues have had. Yeah. One of my friends, he got a degree in youth ministry, and he he would joke that he was majoring in eating pizza. <laughs> 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 so, but I mean, he's he went on in academia and and has a job unrelated to that at yeah. this point, you know. But yeah. like it, it required some finagling and some finding some footing because that didn't that degree didn't pan out the the way he may have envisioned. Yeah, <laughs> totally eating pizza degree. Well, and especially mm -hmm. if you go to seminary uh, and don't have scholarship at seminary, that seminary debt, like the amount of debt that some people have told me that they have accumulated over the course of their undergrad and seminary education, is just monumental. And I think that. Some people, and this is true for people outside of, of ministry, some people really relied on the promise of the debt forgiveness program, the public mm -hmm. service debt forgiveness program, which is just such a cluster. Like it's just so broken that that creates another stress. You're like, okay, I thought that if I made these payments every day for 10 years, like every month for 10 years, then I would be getting this forgiveness. And now that is no longer promised. It's no longer secure. So it's another thing that weighs on people in addition to the sheer existence of the debt. Yeah. One of the elements of just a broader, not just people who have these sorts of <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure that the best way to say it. Just these these underperforming degrees, yeah. these degrees that <laughs> yeah. don't that don't yield their return on investment. Uh, I mean, 
millennials graduated or were very early in their careers when the recession hit. Um, and then they, they had to accept yeah. all of these different underemployed types of positions. How did those economic realities shape and sort of prime us as a, as a group of people to, to be so willing to push ourselves to this point of burnout? I think we essentially lowered our standards, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I think that when you graduate into a recession, you learn to accept anything that is offered to you, right? Like you cannot say, no, mm -hmm. I won't, I won't work for that, you know, hourly wage or no, I won't work without benefits or no, I won't be a part-time permalancer with no sort of security. You don't have the privilege of saying no to, to precarious working conditions. And so you mm -hmm. normalize them in, you know, there at a recent piece by uh, another millennial that I really, really like is called <laughs> the grateful to be her generation has some explaining to do. And it's talking specifically about older millennials who really internalize the idea that, oh, you know, no matter how crappy my job is, no matter how crappy the pay is, how crappy the treatment is, how crappy the hours are, I should be grateful to be here. Because if I, you know, I was chosen or I got lucky to be the person that they chose over so many other people. And if I'm not here, there are hundreds of others who would take my spot. Mm -hmm. And that lowering of standards just like it, it it allows the companies themselves to just continue to lower the standards right mm -hmm. and so across the board our willingness to work for less pay and less security has made it possible for those companies to continue to require people to work at in those conditions and you see that i think in the form of how how the economy added jobs after the recession so a huge number a huge percentage of the jobs added to the economy to bring us back to post pre-recession levels were contingent labor in some way and so that means people who are contract workers people who are permalancers or freelancers people who are independent contractors working for places like uber essentially jobs where you do not have to be treated like a long-term or valued employee. Mm -hmm. And that's something that happened ac across multiple industries, right? You, yeah. You've been in academia and that, yeah. entire, that entire sector, which used to be considered rarefied, but was a place where you could get stable work yeah, and that you could see a return on the investment of all of these things. And yet, the major the overwhelming majority of professors are adjunct now yeah. because of the ways in which those things have been have been stacked against them. Yeah. Makes me want to pivot back to the more systemic element of, of things. You sort of just detailed the the ways in which we as in we individually choose because of our precarious situations to accept things. Even in my own life, like I uh, after college I uh, I worked for a couple of years, then decided to hedge my bets and go to grad school part-time and spent two years um, in part-time grad school. Then, you know, in 2009, like five days after I took the LSAT for yet another degree, I got laid off mm -hmm. and then, then accepted jobs just because I could get them. Mm -hmm. However, 
like that that is definitely an experience that a lot of people have but there's all these other systemic things that happen and one of the terms that you use in the book is something called the fissured workplace Mm -hmm. could you talk about how the workplace began to change in the 70s and 80s and continuing today and how things have become more fissured and we have stopped basically both valuing ourselves individually and as our ability to um, collectively bargain or create unions, that sort of thing. Yeah. First of all, isn't all that stuff so interesting? I just like was so, I was like, oh, this explains everything basically. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's so, it's sort of mind boggling that like the boomers were seen as the me generation (laughs) by their elders and they lobby the same sort of critiques at us now. But then all these other things happened and they they participated in them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's get into that. Yeah, let's yeah. get into that a little bit. So, okay. So the thing that happened, I'm really drawing on two, two pretty great books. One that is just fantastic and I recommend people seek out on their own is called Temp. And it's by the... Um, historian Lewis Hyman, who is from, he's at Cornell, and it is a very readable, accessible, non-academic book. The other is called The Fissured Workplace, and it's by the economist David Wheel, and it is very dry, <laughs> and I would not necessarily recommend it, but it, it offers this really useful concept of the, the, the fissured workplace, and what both of them are saying is essentially over the course of the 1970s and 80s, there were a bunch of moves within companies set forth in part by the rise of the consultant who would go to a company and try to look for what they saw as like redundancies, places where they could lean the company in some capacity, and that led to massive layoffs. And layoffs were signals to Wall Street that the company was getting more profitable because if you could lay off any sort of bulk, if you could cut things like pensions, any departments that like had any sort of long-term liabilities in terms of like, we're going to have to take care of this person for the rest of their lives because they are offering us services for their lives, like things, long-term job security. Mm-hmm. They're getting rid of all those sorts of things. And one thing that consultants saw as a really easy way to cut costs was they could keep their primary employees that were doing oftentimes the white collar work that was dubbed most essential. So like an accounting firm, like let's say 3M could keep, or a place like 3M could keep its accountants and could keep its inventors and those sorts of people. But they could take the people who were not essential to the final product, but they did not think of as essential. So the people running the lunchroom, the landscapers, the janitorial staff, And instead of employing those people and paying them oftentimes the same benefits that were given to the accountants, the engineers, the the so-called essential employees, they could just subcontract that work out and have an entirely different company that only hires janitors do that work for them. Now, you can see how this would be viewed as a brilliant idea, right? Like, let the janitorial company specialize in janitors instead of us. And I I understand that. But what happens is that a place like 3M will look for the cheapest janitorial services. And the cheapest janitorial services are oftentimes the places that pay their workers the least, right? And offer Mm -hmm. the least security. 
But the person who's working as a janitor at 3M, who only really goes to 3M, let's say, like every day they go in, they might even wear a uniform that says 3M on it, but they are not employed by 3M. And they do not have the same benefits as other people who work at 3M. And if they are harassed on the job, they have no recourse with 3M. So what that strategy has spread throughout so many different industries. You know, mm. the like people who work for the American government, oftentimes there's like a subcontractor within a subcontractor or like in a dining hall at a university they subcontract to someone to run the dining hall. Yeah. The university subcontracts to someone to di- run the dining hall, but then they might subcontract someone within that subcontracting to run the janitorial services for the dining hall. Like it's all very windy and difficult to parse like who works for who, but it makes it difficult not only to unionize, but also to like demand equal treatment in any sort of way. And you can see like, you know, Just like if you had a house filled with workers and they never had any access to the kitchen to like talk about their treatment or talk about, okay, so what are you getting paid? And what are you getting paid? They all were relegated to their own rooms. It really makes it hard for that group of workers to come together and, you know, to basically to unionize and ask to be treated as workers instead of as robots. Mm -hmm. We're all living now in this new reality of the coronavirus and you have a you have a preface of the book that states that this book was written in the before times <laughs> you yeah. know that most of it happened before our entire society was upended by a pandemic that's been mismanaged by the federal government how has everything we've experienced in the last several months exacerbated all of these all of these experiences the personal ones as well as all these systemic issues that that feed all of the these events and millions of people's lives. Yeah, I think that if we're considering the ways in which burnout is directly related to levels of precarity, mm-hmm. and the pandemic has heightened our precarity and like our health precarity, psychological precarity, financial precarity, all of these different things, political precarity, like every day wondering what's going to happen with democracy. Yeah. So just basically everything is just amped up to 11, right? Mm -hmm. So I think especially for anyone who is or lives in a home with someone who's an essential worker and thus are grappling every day with what their potential exposure is, um, for people who might have more stability and are working from home, but because of pre-existing conditions, like just can't see anyone, right? Like my, my mom is in complete and utter like quarantine shutdown. And even though that might not seem like it's a precarious position, it is exacerbating every single psychological Mm -hmm. difficulty from before. Um, And, and I think too, with, there's a whole chapter in the book that's a lot about the endless news cycle and our exposure to it and what that does to our everyday experience of the world and for me, I like the combination of the election cycle, what's been happening with climate change out here in the West with the wildfire smoke and the devastation to people's homes. Um, and, and then just like the everyday reality of COVID, it is just overwhelming and I can't look away from it. And I think a lot of people 
either are feeling weird about dropping out entirely from the news cycle, like they're just like, I can't, I cannot do it. Or they're in this, the stage that I'm in, which is like obsessively looking at COVID numbers still every day. Yeah. Um, and, and just internalizing a lot of anger about what's happened. And so I hope like this is part of the book is, can we take that, that clarity afforded by this moment and all of that anger that stems from it? And can we use it not just to vote, but to vote and then demand not just incremental change, but actual change? Mm-hmm. But before sort of getting to the conclusion, which is which is aptly titled "Burn It Down," <laughs> you, you have a, you also have a chapter on parenting that sort of captures the rock and hard place nature of work and even leisure, which is that you know people ha- hustle because they have to, but also are compelled to do this sort of performative aspect of our lives online, which again is also exacerbated by the pandemic. And how are you coping and what are you doing? Like sharing those strategies on Instagram or whatever. (laughs) So do you think that that's one of the things that we can learn to step away from? I know authenticity online is like a cloying sort of thing, especially in certain circles, but at the same time, when it's some of our only recourse and some of our only way we can communicate with the outside world, right? How does how does that affect things, and how do you think we generationally can change our relationship to that? And I have a lot of ambivalence about this because I at once totally respect people who can just be like, "I'm going to get rid of this and not use this to connect to people," and then, like you said in this moment, particularly, it is my sole means of connection with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, of course I could delete all the apps from my phone and just stop. But my world is already so small, right? Yeah. Um, and that would make it even smaller. And it'll, it oftentimes, you know, from Twitter, from Instagram, from Facebook, I personally get a lot of ideas about what to write about. Like, but I do think more normal people, even who are not and <laughs> not getting, not writing about what's going on on the internet all the time. They too, it's a way that they are able to see their friends' kids that they haven't been able to see for a long time. You know, if you're mm-hmm. older, it's a, it's a way to see your kids' kids and like other people in your family. Like it's a real connection. And I do think there are other ways that you can make those connections. Getting on the phone is so underrated and millennials need to reconsider our relationship with the phone. I have found myself somewhat re-embracing my like 14-year-old self that used to just live (laughs) on the phone. Yeah. Just live on the phone. Uh, But uh, at the same time, you know, I quit BuzzFeed in August. And with that, I was able to quit Slack. And I cannot tell you what a huge weight that is off my shoulders. It's one of those (laughs) things that I was like, how am I going to live without Slack? Who am I going to talk to? It's going to be so weird. And I'm like, no, I don't miss it at all. So I think sometimes we really build up the importance of of some of these apps in our life as a connective device. And don't think about how there are all these different ways that we can connect with people and and be close with people. And as recently as five years ago, we used those things. (laughs) So uh, I think that re-embracing that, you know, I even, I think like group texts are far superior than something like Instagram. Um, But 
yeah, I think that it's okay to to think about this stuff, to actually really step back from whatever your relationship is with a social media app or device and and think about it. And it's okay if you decide that like, no, I really want this in my life, but to actually spend some time being deliberative about it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the things about sort of the middle class dream that still haunts us here in America, even though it was only really accessible for a small percentage of the American population, primarily white and male, mm-hmm. as people sort of go about taking in all of the crazy amount of of events that have happened this year from coronavirus to the racial justice protests and the continued violence against black people in America. How do we sort of repudiate the sense of whiteness and white supremacy and patriarchy even that's enmeshed in this sort of middle-class American dream? I think that overlaps a lot with the, with the, the struggles that evangelicalism itself has, white evangelicalism in particular, but it's something that our cohort and Gen Z, as they also grow up, has to consider as we step into more positions of influence in society. Um, Your book sort of shows that we can be really quick to forget the past, (laughs) you know, like the, the, the lessons of the past can be forgotten because we're so busy just... Uh, hustling into the future. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, the uh, I think that when faced with precarity, people are drawn to different strategies. And I think one of the strategies that you see amongst white evangelicals and you see amongst white middle-class Trump voters who, you know, are just a significant amount of his base as white working class voters, if not Mm -hmm. more significant, um, is the idea that what I want to do in order to fix this is secure my place, right? Look out for me and mine. Mm -hmm. And you could see that turn inward in the embrace of Reaganism in the 1980s. And you see it now with the embrace of Trumpism. And there is a lot of attendant racism and xenophobia that is affixed to it today, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that you can say that like, yes, precarity is at the heart of turning towards some of these strategies that doesn't make the strategies less racist or less abhorrent. And at least from my perspective, I think the way that we have to proceed is to not just try to protect me and mine or the individual or your kid's future, but to think about how as a society, we can proceed forward in a way that lifts everyone, right? Like we, and to think about it, like we are only as healthy as the most sick amongst us. We are only as (laughs) burnt out as the most burnt out amongst us. (laughs) Um, You know, we, and that like, we can't, you know, if you can't fix burnout for yourself, you have to fix it in a way that will fix people who don't look like you, don't spend like you, don't act like you, like you have to fix it for society in order for it to actually be fixed on an individual level. And and that's hard, right? This is like a profound shift, I think, in some of the ways that Americans have been trained to think ideologically. Like, we are a, a nation built on the cult of the individual. But I actually think that's pretty profoundly anti-Christian um, if you're actually examining 
the teachings of Jesus, right? I yeah. think that like that's it's a hard thing for people to square. And so returning to some of the teachings that really value collectivism, value solidarity, and and you know, the essential truth of like loving each other. It sounds cliche, but I think that that is something that that gives me hope that like actually relieves burnout for me is the times when I can devote myself to other people, not in a self-sacrificing in order to, you know, <laughs> increase my own standing sort of way, but just because other people matter. Right. Yeah. That's a great note to close our conversation about your book. A lot of it resonated so much from my own experience, and I'm sure other uh, listeners will will find that to be true as well. Where can people find your book? Where can they find you online? You also have a, another publication that just started in August, as you mentioned, um, when you left BuzzFeed, uh, Culture Study, which is on Substack. Um, so tell us where people can find you online and where they can find the rest of your work. Yeah, so my Substack is at annhelen.substack.com. You can just Google like my name and newsletter. It'll also show up that way. Uh, there's a free option and you can also pay if you are a contingent or un or underemployed worker, just email me and I can give you a full subscription. No questions asked. And you can find me on Twitter, you know, wasting my time doom scrolling <laughs> at Anne Helen. Uh, and yeah, I just, in the book, you know, you can find it anywhere that you buy books, but I always recommend just calling up your local indie bookstore mm -hmm. and getting it there. Just get on the phone. Come on, millennials, we can do it. <laughs> we can do it. And thank you so much <laughs> for joining me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure.